0: Let's take our Bibles, open it to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, and um, we're deviating from our ordinary um, verse-by-verse walk through the Gospel of Mark, just for a few weeks again, um, because uh, we're actually busy with a church discipline case in our church in Clarksdorp, and in my preparation of this, also speaking to Michael about this, we, we, we thought that this would be a great sermon series for us as a church in in porch as well that we might be prepared to know what the bible says how does this look like practically what are some of the pitfalls we should be avoiding but also how does true obedience look like in this matter of practicing church discipline and here is the key key text the heart or the the best summary i think in the entire bible of what church discipline looks like what we should do and jesus as the head of the church gives us his counsel his, um, his, his rules, his commands, which are always good for us, but how we should practice this. So let's read again the word of the Lord, Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses if he refuses to listen to them tell it to the church and if he refuses to listen even to the church let him be to you as a gentile and a tax collector truly i say to you whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven again i say to you if two of you agree on earth about anything that they ask it will be done for them by my father in heaven for where two or three are gathered in my name there am i among them Let's pray together. Father, we we rejoice in your great salvation, that you have chosen us, that you've redeemed us, you have called us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your your beloved son, the kingdom of light. And as we have just read in our scripture reading, that that has a effect on us that we hate our sin that we would walk in righteousness because we love you lord we love you because you first loved us and lord i pray for our church in clarkstorp i pray that you will be merciful to our church help us father to be obedient no matter the cost no matter the consequences please bring clarity to our minds and our hearts in this topic lord this is a often confusing, often such a difficult topic that we really need this promise where two or three are gathered, there I am with you. We need that promise because we, are so, we can give up, Lord, in the process. But thank you that you are with us. Help us as a church in Porch to be faithful to you, faithful to one another, and so be a pure bride for our bridegroom, the Lord Jesus. Please give me your Holy Spirit, Lord. Fill me that I might preach with boldness as I ought to preach. In Jesus' name, amen. So if we hear the word church discipline, there might be a few things that, you, that, that, that comes up immediately in our hearts that we are scared of. And, and I think it's mainly to do with that word discipline. When we hear the word discipline, discipline we're tempted to think is mainly a negative thing, mainly something bad, mainly something we should avoid at all costs. But discipline is always good for us. Discipline is the path of life, Proverbs says. Without discipline, there's no way for us to to stay on the path. Think about parenting. Imagine parenting without discipline. Imagine the joy, the, the peace in the home without discipline. Every parent must know this proverb. Proverbs 13 verse 24, it says, Whoever spares the rod hates his son hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Diligent. And as God's children, God loves us and he disciplines us. Hebrews 12, verse 6, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Discipline is a loving thing. It's a good thing. And the reason is obvious because without discipline, we would blindly go on in our sin and destroy ourselves and everybody around us. Without discipline, we will be like blind men and women walking on a high mountain. And it will only be a matter of time until we fall to our death. So discipline is to talk to the blind and say, the way you are going is the way of falling. You're going to die. You're going to destroy yourself. You're going to destroy others around you. Stop. Come back. Don't walk that road. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end of it is death. So Matthew 18, Jesus gives us, The medicine of the church, the medicine to make us healthy as a church of the body. When the body is sick, what do we do? Here is his medicine to walk in and trust in and obey. And I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful. I don't have to figure this out on my own. Right. What would we what would we even do if these verses were not here? We would we would just give up. (laughs) We would just let go. But Jesus gives us his word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. So, before we walk through this text, we're going to just look at um, the definition of church discipline, why we do church discipline, then we're just going to briefly walk through the steps of church discipline, which will be the outline on the board. So, let's begin our time together by looking at a a basic definition of what is church discipline. And here is a very simple definition of church discipline. Church discipline is the process by which we restore a sinning brother or sister back to Christ and to his church church discipline is the process by which you restore a sinning brother or sister back to christ and to his church notice the first word the first word i want to highlight in this definition is the word restore that's the goal the goal of church discipline is to restore people notice in verse 15 of our text it says if your brother sins against you go and tell him his fault between you and him alone if he listens to you you have gained your brother that's the purpose we want to gain our brothers and sisters back to, to Christ and back to ourselves. We don't do this just because we want to get people out. We don't do this because we are irritated with people and we just want to get rid of them as soon as we can. That's a sinful thing. Galatians 6 verse 1 gives the same goal. Galatians 6 verse 1 is another text on church discipline. It says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Notice the text says when a brother or sister is caught. So the idea is this is not just a sin we fall in that we are repentant of and we're fighting. This is a sin that we have, that is starting to master us. A sin that is, we are being caught in it. This is something that is a regular habit of ours. It's a dominating sin. In that case, we should go and do what? Restore. So you see, the the goal, our goal of this is to bring people back, restore them. But the when is also important. So the goal is to restore, but the when, the definition says, we should restore a sinning brother or sister. Verse 15, again, if your brother sins against you. So this is when sin happens. And in this context of Matthew 18, specifically in relationships. I find this amazing in in Matthew 18, and we're going to read Matthew 5, that it's mainly in, in relationships where this church discipline is being practiced. There's this unity. Someone has done something against you that has hurt you in some way. Perhaps it was gossip. Perhaps it was a harsh word or a broken promise or or neglect. So what happens is the relationship is broken between two people. So this this applies to relationships within the church and relationships within the, the family, especially where the two who are married are Christians, the husband and the wife. Notice something important here, important observation about this text. We tend to think when someone sins against us, well, he sinned against me, he must come to me. He must say, sorry, he started it. We sometimes sound like children. He started it. He must come first. I'm not going to say, I'm not going to go to him. But what does Jesus say? Who must go? He says, when a brother sins against you, verse 15, you go, go and tell him his fault. The responsibility lies on you. Just quickly turn to Matthew 5. Just, just turn to Matthew 5, verse 23 and 24. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So now the tables are turned. Now you are the one who has sinned against somebody else. Somebody else has something against you. And Jesus says, Who must go. You must go. So what Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter who who did the sin. It doesn't matter if it was you or it doesn't matter if it was the other person. The responsibility always lies on you to go first. So in a perfect world, how this would look like, if someone has sinned against someone, the two would meet each other halfway to reconcile in a perfect world. But unfortunately, we don't live in a perfect world. And that's why often you would be the person to always go first. And in marriage, it should be the same as well. Not wait for the other person to come. You must go. So that's just beautiful. We should seek to meet each other halfway when there's this unity between us as brothers and sisters in Christ. But our definition continues and says it's just discipline is a process. It's a process. In other words, sometimes that first conversation doesn't work. Sometimes we do go and that first conversation fails. The the conflict isn't resolved. Sometimes we must have multiple conversations, multiple times where we try before the unity is restored. And even that might not work. And then we get step two and three, what Jesus gives us to do. So when it doesn't work the first time, don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. God has given us a process to restore one another. We'll come back to that process a bit later, how that looks like. And the last part of our definition says, we restore the sinning brother and sister back to Christ and to his church. Sin is not something that we just do against one another. The Bible is so clear. Think of David, right? David committed adultery, murdered Uriah, and in his confession in Psalm 51, he says, against you, and you only have I done what is evil. When we sin against one another, when we refuse to be reconciled, when we refuse to be forgiven or to forgive one another, we not only are walking away from our brother and sister in Christ, we are also walking away from Christ himself. Sin cuts us off from the church, but it also cuts us off from from God. God takes forgiveness and reconciliation incredibly seriously. Listen to these warnings. If we refuse to give mercy, refuse to forgive, refuse to reconcile with someone that has hurt you, these are the warnings of Scripture. Listen to Matthew 6. Just turn one, one or two pages to your right. Matthew 6, verse 14. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Matthew 18. Just turn to Matthew 18 again. So the warning is there. If we refuse to forgive, God will not forgive you. Matthew 18. I find it very instructive that the text that immediately follows church discipline is a text on forgiveness. Because in Matthew 18, after Jesus has told and taught his disciples about church discipline, notice what Peter asks in verse 21. Matthew 18, 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? So he's hearing Jesus say, when someone sins against you, you must go and tell him his fault. And if he says, I'm sorry, you forgive. Okay, Lord, how many times must that happen? In the same relationship. Seven. Can we say after seven? Okay, this guy clearly is not changing. So we're going to give up. And then Jesus says, verse 22, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. So the idea is they're not after the 77 times, now you can stop forgiving him. Jesus is making a point, unlimited times. Luke actually says, if your brother says I repent. You must forgive. But, you, but this might feel like, but how can we do this? Why should we do this? Because that's exactly how God forgives you. Remember? Would we like if Jesus gave a limit to say, if you've sinned over the seven to seven times, grace is done? No, the way God forgives us, his mercies are new every morning. He forgives us over and over and over and over again. And right after this, Jesus actually tells a parable to make, it, to make it clear to us. He says, there was a king who was settling his debts, and there came a man who owed an unpayable debt, 10,000 talents. And he was pleading for the king for mercy, and, and the king felt compassion over him and said, I forgive you. You owe me nothing. The man went, and then another man came and owed him 100 denarii. And the man fell down and pleaded with him, please have mercy on me. I'll pay you back. And he says, no. He threw him into prison until he paid back what he owed. The king heard this. The king brought him in. And this is what the king said. Look at verse 21. Oh, not 21, uh, 32. 32 to the end. He says, then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you. If you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Do you see how seriously God takes forgiveness and reconciliation? So a break in our relationships, a refusal to be reconciled is to accept God's judgment, is to accept that that's the way God will treat you. But we're not just separated from God. The goal is not just to be reunited to Christ, but as the definition says, back to his church as well. It's interesting, at the end of verse 17 in Matthew 18, the last step is to tell it to the church. And now the entire church is coming after the sinning brother because when someone leaves or someone sins against the church or someone in the church, the entire body feels that. The entire church groans and pains over the sin of someone in the church. 1 Corinthians 12:26 Paul says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. If one part of the body is sick, the entire body feels it. Whether they realize it or not, sometimes you don't even realize. And especially if there are people in the church unwilling to reconcile, unwilling to forgive, unwilling to to come together. Because by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if if you have love for one another. Therefore, when we pursue church discipline, it is for God's glory. It's for the good of the entire church family. God has given us medicine. And just like medicine, it's often bitter to our taste, but it heals us. It heals us. Now, that's a basic definition that I just wanted to, that's a definition we can just remember when we have to do this. But secondly, let's talk about why we do church as And what's the underlying theological reasons why we do what we do? What are some of the, yeah, the underlying beliefs that supports this? And let me just mention three. I don't think this is exhaustive. But let me just mention at least three reasons why we should be doing this. Number one, because of the authority of Scripture. Because of the authority of Scripture. The simplest answer to why we do this is because God commands us to. Kevin DeYoung, in his excellent book, Taking God at His Word, gave a a very simple definition of the authority of Scripture. He says, the last word always goes to the word of God. The last word always always goes to the word of God we we must never allow the teachings of science of human experience or of church councils to take precedence over the scriptures scripture is the final word we give that last word the final say in our lives and our minds in our emotions to the word of God not to our feelings not to what we think will work because I can I just be honest like every temptation of my heart says, this is not working. But then we say, but Lord, your word is true. It, your, the word of the Lord proves true when we obey. Matthew 18, we see Jesus commanding us. We trust him. But someone might say, but doesn't the same Bible says, you shall not judge? Who are you? Who are we as a church who give us the right to judge another person and tell them they're wrong? short answer who gave us the right to do this jesus did he said we should do this long answer the text that says do not judge actually says we should judge that's not the point of the text and and i'm very thankful that the same text that says we should do church discipline the same book in the same book also says do not judge so the author will have a harmony of, of thought here. Matthew 7 is the text that says we should not judge. And the point there is that we should not judge hypocritically. That's the point. Jesus says, who are you to notice the splinter in your brother and your sister's eye, but you cannot recognize the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take out the plank and then you will see clearly to do what? To actually then take out the splinter. We should still take out the splinter. But do it with humility and sincerity and integrity. We should have the humility of Paul when we, when we approach someone and say, I am the chief of sinners. To tell you to come and to be restored back to Christ. So we do not do just discipline because we think we are better than the person we are disciplining. Far from it. We do it because we trust God. We believe his word and we follow him. Here are just two extra verses I think supports That we should be doing this. Um, John 7, verse 24. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Again, he highlights there is a wrong way to do this. Judging by appearances, judging by the way things seem, by the way you've interpreted the information, but you don't have all the facts. Jesus says, don't judge like that. Don't make too quick conclusions. Don't speculate. You know how often we do that? We, we see a situation and we start speculating. Yeah, he did this because he doesn't care for me. If he really loved me, he would have greeted me. And, 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 and suddenly you have this whole debate in your mind that has never happened. And you're angry with that person. But the person was just distracted by a bird or something small. And then you are so upset. So Jesus says, don't judge like that. Don't judge by just the way it seems. Find out the facts. Find out the truth. And then judge. You see, so we should judge, but the judging there is not con- condemning. I think, when we th- I think we have one definition in our culture which is very unhelpful. We, th- we hear judge, we hear condemn. That's not what we mean by judging our brother, judging us. sister. We, we, we mean judging by saying, seeing a pattern of sin in their life and telling, it, telling them there's sin in their lives, and we want them back. We want them to come back to Christ and to the church. So that's what we mean by judge, not condemnation, but correction. Another verse, 1 Corinthians 5 verse 12, this is just another verse that shows why church membership is so important. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 12, it says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. You see, there's actually an inside and an outside of the church. And, and Paul says we cannot judge those on the outside because what do you expect from unbelievers? Well, how do you expect them to live? We should expect them to live in sin. But from the, on, those on the inside, those who, are, who have confessed that they are a Christian, those who have been baptized, those who are church members, those, those on the inside, we are to judge. Again, judge in the sense of correcting one another, telling one another our sins, our faults, and So you see, there's a different expectation from those on the inside than there are from those on the outside. We expect saved people to show their their repentance and their faith. Like like we just read in 1 John, if you are born of God, you will not keep on making a practice of sin. That's why we should judge one another. So we practice loving, humble church discipline because of the authority of Scripture. Scripture. But secondly, we also practice church discipline because of the nature of sin. Because of the nature of sin. Sin is not a cute puppy with which we can play. Sin is an anaconda that's waiting for you to sleep so that it can strangle you and kill you. That is what sin does. We, we, we get, if you get too comfortable, it will wrap itself around your neck and kill you and kill your family and kill everybody around you. So we practice church discipline because sin is awful in every way. It separates us from God. It separates us from one another. Sin always demands more of us. It never satisfied Like cancer, it starts small and grows and starts eating us from the inside out until we're dead. Hebrews 3 verse 13. Again, the cure is church discipline. 3.13 says, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see what sin does? It deceives us and it hardens us. And the way we prevent that from happening is the church is, is exhorting one another, is telling, telling one another our faults. So salvation is a community project. Your salvation is not a me and God project. God has given us the church to keep us saved, to keep us in the faith, to keep sin from not taking over our hearts and our thoughts and our minds. So if we, if we, if we refuse to do church discipline, sin will rule. Sin will take over. Lastly, the last reason we practice church discipline is because it is the medicine for the church. We've already mentioned it, but let me highlight exactly how. Church discipline is good for us. It's the medicine for us. Number one, it's good for the sinning Christian. Church discipline is medicine because it's good for the sinning Christian. That's the way God keeps us saved. We have one another to correct us. We have blind spots. We don't see our sin. Often, and I praise God for this, often church discipline stops with step one. Going alone and correcting one another. And that's enough for for most Christians. Actually, just in this week, one brother corrected me on the way I treated my wife. And I I was listening and I was thankful for that. And I said to him, I thank you that you, you don't just assume and don't just let me go and do that. Thank you that you corrected me. And I'm thankful for that. We should be thankful when someone points out our sin to one another. We should be thankful for that. The rest of the steps are for the more severe cases when our brother and sister don't want to repent. When they've hardened their hearts. But then God has given us those steps as well to win one another, to gain our brother. So church discipline is good for the sinning Christian. But secondly, it's also good for the disciplining church. It's good for the sinning Christian, but it's also good for the disciplining church. When the church has to practice church discipline, it has a humbling effect. It has a purifying effect. It has a soul-searching effect. that's where Matthew 7 becomes really practical of taking out the plank out of our own eyes first actually the the, the church discipline case that we're busy with in Clarksdorp, the Lord has used that to show a massive hypocritical double life sin that I am living in that God exposed and I repented of it I confessed it to another brother and I'm thankful for that and I can thank God that he used church discipline with somebody else to sanctify me so we first take out, we ask God, where are the logs in our eye? Where are we okay with sin? Where do we think sin is not that bad? Where are we living in secret? So taking out, so doing church discipline causes us to have a greater fear for our own sin, for our own deceitful hearts, for our own struggle. So it, 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 it purifies us, but it also shows us the seriousness of sin. 1 Timothy 5, 19 says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all with what purpose? So that the rest may stand in fear. When we practice church discipline, call out sin for what it really is, the rest of us realize that sin is serious. And we fear that we too might fall in that same sin. So we take steps to avoid it. Because when we, when we do church discipline, we realize that the, the, the person we are disciplining, are, we are the very ones capable of doing that very same sin that they are doing. That's why Galatians says, keep a watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted when you'd go and restore. So that's what church discipline, it humbles us, it causes us to fear, but it also gives us security as fearful sheep. I actually know of a lady, one lady in our church in Clarksdorp, she says she's so thankful for just discipline because she knows we will not let her go if she starts sinning. It gives true sheep peace to know, we're not gonna let you go easily. Like Charles Spurgeon says, if you have to go to hell, you will have to first trip over our bodies. We will come after you because we love you. And we hate sin and we love the glory of God. We will leave the 99 and we will come after that one. To bring you back. So beloved this is good news. This is good news for us. This is good for us. God has given us as a means. To keep us in his love. And in his commandments. But let's close our time together. By briefly walking through the steps. Of Jesus' discipline. What must we do? How does these steps look like? And this is also going to be very brief. And next week we'll, we'll, we'll go a little bit deeper. Verse 15. Step number one. Go alone. Go alone. Verse 15. Very clear. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. The first step is the step we wished everybody would do for us. Isn't it so painful when you find out what other people think of you behind your back? When you have thought, why didn't you just come to me and tell me? But that's what Jesus says. That's exactly what we should do. We should, the first step is if you are angry, if you are upset, if you have bitterness, if there's unforgiveness, if there's someone has sinned against you, you must go alone. Go in person and talk it out. But we do often the exact opposite of that. We talk to everybody except that person. We share it with everybody because we, want, we first want more followers of us. And then to correct the sin so that we have an army to attack. That's sinful. That's wrong. Gossip is a sin which God hates. He who sows discord between brothers is one of the seven sins that God hates. Talking behind their backs. I'm sad to say that I think this happens often in marriages. The husband and the wife does something that hurts them. And they go to the parents and they talk about their sin. They go to their friends, their colleagues, and they talk about their husband and their wife. But they don't talk to the husband and the wife about the sin that they are feeling hurt by. So, beloved, if you are on the receiving end of this, if you hear gossip coming to you about what other people have done, we should not listen. This takes courage. I've heard a story of a person um, that they were in the same room of the person that the person was gossiping about. And the person stopped the person and says, whoa, 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 stop, wait. Hey, just come here. I said, hey, he has something to tell you. It's like, yeah, tell him what you told me. Suddenly this man didn't want to share anymore what was wrong. But may we have the same courage to do that. May we have the same courage to do that. Step one, go alone. Step two, Take two or three with you and plead for repentance. Take two or three with you and plead for repentance. Verse sixteen, verse sixteen says, "But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses." I praise the Lord that step one, like I said, is often enough. We don't often don't have to go here. But the Lord knows we're living in a fallen world. We're living in a world where the ideal is not happening. And so we have a step two if sin is, has hardened our brother and our sister. We then take two or three so we can be sure that the sin that we think is sin is sin. Notice the very purpose of this. He gives the purpose of why we should take two or three in the verse. Notice again the purpose in verse 16. He says, Take two or others with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Okay. I love this. So this is a protect protection of the person that's going and doing the church discipline because sometimes the person that thinks it's sin is wrong. And the two or three goes along with you and say, Brother, you are actually the wrong one. This is not sin. You see, so it gives us assurance as well when our two or three that we take agrees that it's sin. And now the two or three also pleads and it gives that. Again, notice there are no time limit here. Jesus doesn't say for a week or for a month or for a year. It, it, it's a matter of wisdom. We should do this as long as we think will be appropriate. But notice that in verse 17. That's what the two or three do, does. If he refuses to listen to them, that's what the two or three are doing. He, they are pleading with this person to repent and to be restored. So the two or three are now extra voices. Towards the person that needs to repent. But then sometimes that even might fail. And Jesus gives us step three. Step three is tell it to the church. Tell it to the church. Verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now here I want to recommend some wisdom steps. So this is not mentioned in the text. But this is just some wisdom steps I think will be helpful for us to do. So if step one and two has failed, now we seek to involve the elders. Involve the elders. Go and tell tell the elders of the church first. Inform them of the situation. Let them know what's, what has been happening. And then the elders can gather information. They gather information. So they then go to the person that's been accused and try to listen, try to understand, try to understand the full picture of how it's been handled. And then the elders should communicate what's the way forward, communicate What's the way forward? Make contact with the person, meet up with the person, reach out to the person once they have gathered enough information. And then the elders tell the church once they had information, once they see the full picture, then they do step three of the communication. And throughout this whole process, we just remember this super practical proverb, Proverb 18, 17. It says, he who states his case first seems right until another comes and examines him. So true. The person that shares their side of the story always seems right. Always. Without exception. Because they will always minimize their faults and always maximize the other person's sin. We need to always think that there is another side to the story. We need the full picture. We need all the facts. That's what we are looking after. But then after the facts have been gathered, the church then discipline needs to go on. And then at a church meeting, the elders should let the church know by So what I have done today is actually written out a whole letter explaining to the church what is happening so that my emotions doesn't get in the way, but just to read that letter to the church. Now the entire church reaches out. So now it's, again, the third step is not the final step yet. The third step is the entire body now runs after the brother and the sister and and reaches out with love, in need of, reaches out to a person that's in need of the gospel, in need of grace. Again, there's no time limit here. Again, this might take days, weeks, months. Depending on how serious the sin is. We're going to look at that next week as well. But if this step also fails, once the entire church has come around, try to plead, try to ask for repentance. The fourth step is to practice excommunication, to excommunicate the brother or sister. Um, Verse 17, And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile, and a tax collector. Excommunication simply means out of communion. Out of our fellowship. Out of not permitting to, be, to partake of the Lord's Supper, of communion. Because now the church now sees this person as a Gentile and a tax collector. We treat and think of that person no longer as a Christian. We have, the church has made a mind shift in their minds about what this person is. Because their profession of faith is being denied by their life. So there's a mind shift, that we no longer see this person as a saved person. But here is extremely important to emphasize, how do we then treat unbelievers? How do we then treat a tax collector and a Gentile? What do we do with those people? We love them, right? We reach out to them, we share the gospel with them, we don't shun unbelievers, we don't cut unbelievers completely off from our lives. No, we love them, we serve them, we welcome them to our services. We still seek a relationship with them. But we have made an important mind shift. You see, that's the key thing that changes. We no longer have fellowship with the sinning person because their of faith is being denied by their works. Again, I just want to say, this doesn't mean the person can never repent, never come back. We see examples of, in, in the scriptures, examples of true life stories that after step four has happened, the, the, the person comes back then we should embrace that brother and sister with both hands and have the same joy that Jesus told about in the parable of the prodigal son, in the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin. We should rejoice. That should be the most joyful day of our church's life when we see our our brother and sister come back. But the last step is so important for the health of the church. It makes our minds clear about what is a Christian and what is a non-Christian. It helps us see the difference between the church and the world. You see, if we do not do this, that line is blurred. The line between a true Christian and and a a non-believer is no longer existent. And it destroys, it's not good for the world and it's not good for us. So that line is important. The, this is how a true Christian lives. And that is how a true Christian do not live. So let us all fear. Let us all fight our sin until the death. So beloved, let, will you commit with me? Will you commit with me to obey the Lord in this? Will you follow Jesus even when it's uncomfortable? But joyful road of obedience to his word. Let us throw away all gossip. Let us commit to not share anything about anyone that will make them look worse than they were before the conversation, but rather go in person if we have bitterness or anger in our hearts. Can I make an open invitation to do that with me? If I have sinned against you in any way, will you come to me and tell me my fault? I would rejoice If you tell me that, let us trust God's word above our feelings, above what seems to work, because God's word is always best. Let us follow Jesus even until the end of our lives. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, how sinful are we? Lord, our sin in our hearts, the double life we often live, the hypocritical life we so often live. Father, we wanna come before you and humble ourselves before you. We wanna take out the plank in our own eyes, the double standards we have sometimes for ourselves that we don't apply to other people. Father, please, Help us to humble ourselves before you. Search us, O Lord, and see if there be any wicked way in me. May we see ourselves as the chief of sinners who have been saved by your grace. Father, help us to to commit, to not slander one another, to not gossip about one another. But if we have a grievance, if there's something in our hearts that affects our relationships with with one another in our marriages, that we would seek help. We would first go in private and then seek to involve others if it doesn't work. Father, I pray for our marriages in this, in this room. Help husbands here to, to passionately love our wives, to lay down our lives for our wives. Help wives here to submit to their husbands, respect their husbands. Help us, Lord, as husbands and wives, never to share all our troubles with Everybody else except our spouse. Help us to, to communicate clearly, honestly and openly. Let us do that with one another in the church. Lord, it is painful, it's uncomfortable, it's hard, but help us, Father. Give us the courage to do that. Thank you for your church. Thank you for your bride, your, your community of believers that, that keeps us safe, that keeps us within the faith, May we never shun discipline and shun correction, but may we lovingly and joyfully receive it, knowing, Lord, that it is good for us. It is your medicine for a sick church. Help us to be that healthy church to walk in holiness, both in private and in public. We love you. We thank you, Lord, for everything you've done. I pray this in Jesus' name.